Well, thank you, Dr. Sherwood. It's good to see all of you. I've crossed paths with you. I recognize your names and uh, some of you I've known your family. And when you're my age, you've either pastored somebody's grandparents or parents somewhere along uh, the line seems to be. Um, I certainly don't have to tell folks at Nazarene Bible College, the world has changed, not just in my grandparents' lifetime. It's changed in my lifetime. I remember when I replanted uh, the Nazareth, restarted the Nazarene Church in Syracuse, Indiana, which is a really small little town in north central Indiana, and we were digging the church out. So this is in my lifetime, just to kind of give us a little context of how much the world has changed. When I was uh, restarting that church, one of the interesting things was the school system, the Wawasee school system, had a rule. And that was there were no school activities on Wednesday night because it said that is church night. And now you fast forward to where we are today. And unfortunately, many of us got our training in our formative years in, in those days when the culture at least accommodated, if not, uh, not at times encouraged people. And I don't know if you've paid attention the last couple of months, but nobody's doing that much uh, anymore. And I think it's disconcerting for a lot of folks in ministry. It looks and feels a lot differently. And all of us have, uh, even going through the pandemic, we all kind of have this idea that nobody's ever had it as bad as we have, and the world's never been as stinking and rotten as it is right now. Uh, and those who really believe that must have never read the Bible very seriously, because there have been a lot of stinky times uh, throughout the, the history of humanity. And one of the stories that I'm trying to sh share and help our people with in this time is um, from the 28th and 29th chapter of Jeremiah. And in, I literally called the 29th chapter um, a letter to captives, a letter to um, exiles. Jeremiah was not only the weeping prophet, he's one of the really first ones who really captured this idea of sermon illustrations of living it out. He puts a wooden yoke around his neck and delivers the message that God has brought us to Babylon and we're going to stay here. But Jeremiah also faced what others have faced down through the years, and that is, along with God's prophets, there are a few false prophets that rise up, and one there, his name was Hananiah. And very dramatically, in the 28th chapter of Jeremiah, he takes the yoke off of Jeremiah's neck and lifts it over his head and throws it down and breaks it and says what we hear later is a false message that in two years, God is going to take you home. Don't listen to this man. And uh, Jeremiah is weeping and talking to the Lord. And the Lord tells him, make an iron yoke. Can't break an iron yoke. And he's going to deliver an interesting message to the people in exile in Jeremiah 29. If I were able to come to your homes or your offices today, there's probably a high likelihood, at least with some of the people I'm looking at today, if I looked very hard, I'd find something with Jeremiah 29:11 um, inscribed. I've seen it on mugs. I've seen it on plaques and pictures on people's walls. Uh, hardly can you go to a service when you ask someone, would those of you like to share a verse that's really meaningful to you? And it's uh, usual that you'll hear Jeremiah 29:11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you 
plans to give you hope and a future. And it's a wonderful, positive verse. But I don't think we really understand the context. And I know that whenever a pastor begins talking like this, we think another minister is going to ruin my favorite verse and tell me it doesn't say what I think it says. And that's not true. I think this is one where like a bright diamond shining off of a black velvet um, background, it's even brighter. Think about the children of Israel. They were told they were the people of promise, that through them, God was going to bless the world. He gave them a land that was called the promised land, the holy land. And they just thought that was what it was going to be. Regardless of what happened, they were always going to be God's people in God's place, and everything was going to be like this. So can you imagine how disconcerting it was when an evil empire like Babylon comes sweeping through their country like a hot knife going through butter, taking them away, and now they don't have the land, they are separated, some of them from their family, and they're wondering, what what in the world is God doing. Um, There are times, I'm sure you've all experienced this, where God doesn't work the way I thought he was going to work uh, in a particular section. Matter of fact, they're going to hang their harps in the willow tree and wonder how in the world can they sing the songs of God in a strange and foreign land. So it's often that God's people live Uh, live in exile. So in Jeremiah's um, sermon from the Lord, I'm going to pick up at the fourth verse of the 29th verse, and we will eventually get down and bump into the powerful promise. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all of those I carried uh, into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Um, The very first thing I'm struck with is God doesn't say the devil carried you into Babylon, or even you carried yourselves there. He doesn't even say your sin carried you there. He says, I carried you into exile. So I I have been kind of marinating and living with that verse of thinking, if God did this for the children of Israel, um, are there some reasons I find myself alive at this time, going through what I'm going through, Are there ministry opportunities? Are there lessons to be learned? And and why does the Lord have me, or all of us, where we are? And I carried you from exile, from Jerusalem, the city of God, the city of peace, to Babylon, which would have been the worst place that any Jewish person would have thought they would have ever wanted to live, Babylon. And, And so, he's carrying them into exile, their tendency is to give up. Oh, it's over. It's never going to change. But here's what God says to them. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. What, what a, uh, for us, a, almost a curveball as to what the Lord um, would say. No, notice what his, his purpose is. You get a place to live, grow food so you have something to eat, get married, have children, 
and have your children have children. So what is God saying to the uh, children of Israel, his people in Babylon? It's one word. I'm going to give it to you. This may be as deep as I get today. Live. Live even in exile. Live. I, I, I seemingly meet so many pastor friends of mine as I go from place to place who are almost holding their breath waiting for all of this to pass, who are almost putting their life on hold, waiting till things get back to normal. And I've said to them, what if this is normal? What if this is um, our life? You see, God's purpose is, do you have a place to live? Do you have something to eat? And do you have a family to love? Then it really doesn't matter where you live. You are blessed. It really doesn't matter a lot of your other circumstances for having been a pastor since 1981, I don't remember anyone saying on their deathbed, boy, I wished I'd have worked longer. I, I wished I'd have taken that overtime when it was offered to me. The, the regret, regrets usually revolve around families and relationships uh, and, and those sorts of people. Now, there are two things, I think, why God gives this uh, lesson to them is there are there are two schools of thought of what we think when we're living in exile. First, before as we're going into exile, um, I'm wondering if the uh, children of God said, oh, we will never end up in Babylon. We're God's kids. We, we're the called ones. We're the anointed one. That, that may happen to those people over there, but that's never going to happen to us here. And it's sort of a false confidence. Unfortunately, I think American Christianity is rife with false confidence. It all oh, will never happen to us. We are, we are set apart. We are separate. If it happened to the folks living in Jerusalem, it probably very easily could happen to the folks living in the United States. False confidence. And then the, the flip side of that coin is once you get there, you think, I am never getting out of Babylon. This is my lot, the rest of my life. This is horrible. And we give to despair. I feel that our people are living in the gravitational pull between false confidence and despair. And in the midst of this tug of war between false confidence and despair, God says, buy a house, plant crops, get married, have children. Now, Mrs. Blake and I only had one child, and we were nearly 30 years old when he came on the scene. It was in, I, I can still remember it, because she had to have an emergency C-section. And in those uh, dark ages of when I was young, if, if you were going to be in the birthing room, it had to be really planned. And if it was an emergency, uh, you, you were not allowed in. So it, early in the wee hours of the morning, after having been to the hospital for, for 24 hours, uh, I'm in the waiting room, kind of like the 1950s sitcoms, like those nervous dads. And finally, the nurse came in and said that I, you could come in. And um, I was pastoring a very small church in those days and had other kinds of issues that everybody has. But, but something happened when they handed my, my little six-pound baby son to me. 
I forgot every one of my problems. I forgot all of the things people done to me in the past, all of the failures, all of the, and all I could think about, I was overcome with emotion and hope for the future. I'm wondering if, if God isn't saying that to the children of Israel. Rather than despair, if you have some children, children are always the promise that things are going to get better tomorrow. Um, I even think of that as we think of what Jesus said to Nicodemus about the new birth. Birth is always the promise of a better today, tomorrow, and future. So he says to them, not only that, but also seek the peace and the prosperity of the city in which I carried you to into exile. Here's the thing that I've had to get my mind around. As exiles, we need to pray for our leaders. Um, if it were an election year, I would say to you, um, whoever you voted for, pray for the other person. Um, whatever side in the world you don't like, or if you're like most of us, you don't care for any side, um, pray for them. Pray for the peace. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. It's as if uh, God is saying to these children of Israel, when you're there, don't make the place worse because you're there. Even as a place as awful as Babylon, make a difference. You see, I think what their problem was is perhaps our problem as well. Um, I hear many people that are expecting what I never heard that God promised. God never promised us that we would sail through life without difficulty or problem, and everybody in the entire world would, would think we, everything was wonderful with us. Uh, maybe they, the problem with the people in the 29th chapter is they refused to believe what God had promised, that he was going to redeem the world. God will not always do what I expect he's going to do, but he will always do what he says he's going to do. So he told them that, and yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. Um, if we were in a preaching class, that'd be a wonderful session there. Um, are we preaching the dreams that our people want us to push forward, or are we preaching the word um, of God? I'll let you all do that on your own nickel. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. God has revealed through his prophet that this wasn't going to be a short trip. I'm wondering if there are some people that heard Elijah's sermon who thought, 70 years, you've got to be kidding. I'll be dead. You mean I'm going to have to spend the entirety of my life in Babylon? But the promise is I will come back and I will bring you back to the land. But here's where I have you right now. Too many of us are living in some future place where we're going to be when things are better. People are always finding reasons why they would be better serving God when they're out of debt, when their in-laws leave town, 
when they have more money in the bank and they're out of debt and we're healthy and we have a job we enjoy, we always have an excuse why we're living somewhere in the future rather than where we are right now. All right, that's the context. Now, hear that promise with this background. For I know the plans I have for you. The context is, even in Babylon, God has plans. I have plans for you. Plans to prosper you. Now, unfortunately, in our culture, whenever we see the word prosper, hear it, we automatically think in strictly financial and economic terms, and there's certainly that component to it. But, but prosper means fullness. You, you can be full of the joy of the Lord and be a prosperous believer. You can be full of the presence of God. You can be full of gratitude for God. Plans to prosper you and, and not to harm you. If God could say that, and it's his word, and it's his promise to the exiles, that even though to them it seems that they were suffering harms, God says, I, I, I'm not to, to harm you. And then this is to me one of the most beautiful promises in the scriptures. Plans to give you hope and a future. Hope and a future, even if you're in exile. Uh, I was raised by my grandparents. And in 1970, I'm going to tell you my age here in a moment. If you're hooked on math, you'll be able to figure it out. I was almost 14 years old. My grandfather came out of the factory where he worked in Fort Wayne, Indiana, got behind the wheel of his car and had a massive heart attack and died on the spot. So at home, that left uh, me a kid and my blind grandmother. And our family didn't think the two of us could uh, manage by ourselves. And we got for that summer farmed out. And I was farmed out to a part of the family, a distant part of my family, who didn't go to church, who didn't love God, who didn't do the things that I'd done all of my life. And for the first time in my life was I not, not only suffering this, this grief, I wasn't in church. I wasn't around my church family, who I loved and who loved me. And it was disorienting. By the end of uh, the summer, it was decided my grandmother and I would move in with my mother, who was subsequently divorced again. And it was a chaotic household. And I had now been out of church for three, four months. In, in those days in my hometown, we started school the day after Labor Day. That's why I'm able to remember what this date was. It was the first Friday of September, 1970. I had just gotten home from school and there was a knock at the door. And uh, I looked out through the door Though I did not know these people, in 1970, I knew exactly who they were. I knew he had to be a preacher and his wife. They had a, they had a uniform look back in the dark ages there. And so I opened the door, slid out. I didn't want him in the house. I thought, oh, brother, I have chaos in the house and a preacher on the porch. How much worse can things get for a kid? And as I stood there, Pastor Watson introduced himself and his wife, Donna, and said, we're the new pastor at the Southside Church of the Nazarene, and the people have told me about you, and we miss you, and we want you to come back, and I kind of went through a little litany of what a rotten year I was having, and life was uh, hard, and, and um, he said, well, 
why don't you come back to church this Sunday? And I said, well, there's nobody in here is going to give me a ride. Nobody in here wants me to go to church. So I, I, I'm just not able. And he said, Mr. and Mrs. Miller will pick you up at nine o'clock on Sunday morning. And I couldn't think of a good reason to say no. So I went and I have been going these 52 years since. And I often think how quickly our life turns on such small hinges. And when I stepped out of that very chaotic uh, home that I would not have chosen to live, and I liked my life the way it was, I was now in exile. And when I walked out on that porch, Pastor and Mrs. Watson offered me two things that were not available in that house, hope and a future. And uh, 45, 50 years later, I would officiate his funeral. Just that one decision changed the trajectory of my life. I, I often say to our pastors, what people need more than money and a new job and a better situation, they need two things that we offer, hope and a future. In a hopeless, hopeless world, they need it. It's the, the greatest thing that they need. And the future is not just heaven. It's the future that every day going on, I don't have to go by myself. The Lord is with me and he's going to help me. Um, maybe we need a reframing. We all know, and we could have spent the entire moments that we had together of talking about what's wrong with the world. What's wrong with our circumstances? What, what's going badly where we live? But re reframing about what's wrong with our circumstances, perhaps we need to focus on what's right with God. What is God doing and what is God saying? Here's, I believe, the, the kind of a love letter that Jeremiah 29 is, not only for the people who heard it, but for us. Here's the, the encouragement I found is I'm going to summarize this passage of scripture in about uh, six sentences from God. I sent you to Babylon. I'm thinking about you, even in Babylon. God is saying, I've not forgotten about you or where you are. God says, I am with you, even in Babylon. In Babylon, I will give you hope. I will give you a future. And I will bring you back home. And finally, that passage says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Does it mean we all are happy that we're living in Babylonian times? No. But rather than blaming the Republicans and the Democrats and someone else, the preacher, the teacher, the school system, have we ever considered that God put us where we are for such a time as this to make a difference, to trust him, even when we're going through all that we're going through? And be reminded, my sisters and brothers today, you have hope and you have future right where you are today. May I pray with all of you? I don't know how much time you gave me. I think Scott said something like five hours, but I, I thought I'd cut it down to a more reasonable 
a little part, but uh, Dr. Sherwood, may I pray for all of you? Father, I thank you for this uh, morning and for these folks. Life has taken twists and turns for all of us. And there are times when we feel like we are reeling. There are times when we feel we're, we're losing our, our equilibrium. But wherever we are and whatever my sisters and brothers are going through, could we hear the word today? You know right where we are. Nothing that's happened to us has taken you by surprise. And you're with us and you're for us and you have a plan and you have a purpose for our lives. And in a world in which there's very little to hang on to, can we hold on to the words hope and a future? There's hope for our situation. There's hope for Nazarene Bible College. There's hope for each and every one of us. We have a future from today and beyond. The Bible College has a future in your plan. Thank you for grace greater than all of our sin. Thank you for saving, sanctifying power and the presence of your Holy Spirit. Would you pour out your blessings upon these folks today? Would you let them know that you have not forgotten them, that you care deeply about them, and that they are making a difference? Bless and be with us. Keep us and the people in our nation safe during this stormy season that we're living in. And uh, during this winter storm, would you keep folks safe? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.